welcome to the Evoke Ag podcast, the show where we take a look at the ag tech and food innovations changing the future of farming. Hello and welcome to the AgriFutures Evoke Ag podcast. I'm your host, Steve Honor. This week, we bring you a podcast from AgriFutures Grow Ag, the gateway to Australia's agri-food innovation system. Our Grow Ag contributor, Samantha Noon, catches up with Tegan Nock, co-founder and CPO of Australian microbial tech startup, Loam Bio, and Louisa Burwood-Taylor, head of media for Silicon Valley venture capital firm, AgFunder. And she's also the chief editor of AgFunder News, the go-to global investment news platform. Together, they explore the key investment trends and noteworthy funding rounds from recent AgFunder 2022 AgriFood Tech Investment Report, including Loan Buyer Series A Top 5 Australian Investment Deal worth $40 million Australian, and what that means for the Australian biotech going forward. First, Louisa joins us from London to help unpack the deal flow trends, including China's investment slump, India's blossoming market, where alternative proteins are headed, and the growing calibre of innovative startups making their mark. Louisa, welcome to the AgriFutures Grow Ag podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today from London. Thank you so much for having me. So firstly, well done. I want to get straight into the recent release of the 2022 Ag Funder Asia-Pacific Agri-Food Tech Investment Report. This is a mammoth piece of work and an incredibly valuable tool for the global community. So tell us, what did you enjoy most about curating this resource? Yeah, thank you. So it um, was really exciting because this was the first time that we'd done this report focused on Asia-Pacific. Uh, and we have, you know, we have a team in Singapore and one of our partners is actually Australian. So it was great to kind of finally get the chance to shine a light on the region with some fantastic partners like yourselves. Uh, and it was a really exciting report to get put together. I don't think we expected the level of funding to be as significant as it was and the diversity of the types of investments and um, innovations that entrepreneurs are creating across the region. It was really exciting. And we had a fantastic event in Singapore to launch it. Uh, And these reports are great. They really are a fantastic way of bringing people together. But I hear all the time how helpful and useful they are to particularly to newcomers coming into food tech and ag tech, which is what we need. So I'm really glad that we can continue to push them out. So you've shared a little bit about the report launch. How do you think the global agri-food tech community responded to the report's results? Do you think there were any surprises in there in specific categories? Well, I think what was really exciting to see was the sneak peek at this year, 2022, and the level of investment that came in in the first half of the year, which um, was over $5 billion dollars. And there's a there's a China caveat that we need to kind of make along the way and we can get into that. Yeah, but if you exclude China, there was a 15% year over year growth in investment, which given the current climate, um, as everyone knows, we're you know, in a bit of a weird sort of downturn, inflation is, is crazy um, across the world. So the fact that there's been an increase in investment in the region in the first half of this year definitely bucks um, so many different trends across venture capital globally. We haven't done the global figures yet for agri-food tech, but I'm pretty sure that that will be um, a decline as well. So that was exciting. It's a vibrant ecosystem. 
You've just touched on some of the big insights there. Investment in Asia-Pacific agri-food tech startups did break records in 2021 with $15.2 billion, taking investment to over $55 billion in 10 years, which accounts for about 30% of global food tech and ag tech funding. So with roughly 678 deals in total, what stands out as noteworthy for you? Yeah, so it was a it was a very um, interesting and mixed year in, in 2021. I think um, I've mentioned it just before, but I think you need to sort of look at China as its own as its own case. Uh, there were some absolutely ginormous deals from China, including one two billion dollar round for an e grocery startup, which uh, you know definitely skewed some of the numbers. Uh, I think that's been a really interesting trend in itself, and we're seeing that same trend in other parts of the world as well. And obviously, with COVID accelerating the need for that at home dining. Um, you know, at-home dining and at-home grocery shopping, not needing to go out outside, and particularly in China where there's been protracted lockdowns, it's been really important. What's interesting now, though, is that the the type of business model that a lot of those companies were pursuing was a kind of growth at any costs, um, you know, raise loads of money, essentially acquire customers, offer them deeply discounted deals uh, to get them onto the platform and then the hope is that they stay with you and are a customer for, for a long time and I think that flaws have started to show within that model a lot of money has been burnt through and maybe those customers have not been as valuable as those companies thought so we've actually started to see some failures I think I've heard of at least two of the really big Chinese grocery companies did fail just months after raising uh, large rounds so um that that Chinese e-grocery piece is going to be a much smaller feature in 2022, uh, but it's a chance for other parts of the region to um, to have their moment. And what was an exciting takeaway from this report was that India, for the first time, is overtaking China as the most active and the most invested country for agri-food tech in Asia-Pacific. That's really exciting. Can you share a little bit about some of those top deals or anything of note in terms of trends in, in India? So uh, India, you know, I mean, downstream startups. And when I say downstream, I mean, you know, the startups that are operating closer to the consumer, like your e-grocery, your restaurant delivery, your retail technologies, those um you know, absolutely dominate the Indian marketplace as well. There were some really big rounds for companies like that. But it also has a, a very bustling farm tech ecosystem. And I think what's really exciting about India is that they are one of the first ecosystems that um, were around in ag tech. Like when I started reporting on this space back, it's actually nearly 10 years ago now, um, India was was one of the, you know, locations um, where we saw ag tech startups being created. And they've got some fantastic uh, startups across different categories like farm management software, uh, agribusiness marketplaces, which are connecting smallholder farmers with markets to purchase better seeds and inputs, but also better markets to sell their, um, to sell their wares and, and, and reduce their need to interact with middlemen where a lot of the profitability and, and, and so on um, gets lost for them. So India is, is really vibrant across farm tech, as well as having some decent downstream food tech innovations too. 
Yeah, India is very exciting. We're looking forward to seeing what comes out of there in the coming years. Just going back to looking at sort of the overall report and funding, you know, you mentioned some things about China. I I was curious to pick your brain a little bit further about the investment flows in the first half of 2022, which, you know, did indicate a significant slowdown in in line with global venture capital, which is 47% year-on-year drop. So, Just for our listeners, can you unpack what is driving this and how you anticipate deals tracking in the second half of 2022? Yeah, so the main reason for that drop is the pullback in funding to China. Um, In the first half of the year, Indian startups raised 2.7 billion, whereas China didn't even reach 1 billion. And when you compare that to last year, where China raised uh, $7.2 billion in one year, you could see that's a significant drop. Uh, so I think what's nice is that we're not going to have those outliers in 2022 kind of skewing the data so we can kind of see see what's going on in a kind of more normalized um, data set. I think the numbers of deals are tracking up. I think companies, you know, they are struggling a bit to get the valuations that they might have got uh, last year. There were certainly some categories, and we can get into this um, about alternative proteins, for instance. There were categories that have been hyped up, and valuations did skyrocket. And last year was absolutely the peak for some of those categories. So I think we'll see a bit more, um, again, kind of realism and normalization in 2022 numbers. However, you know, I'm still amazed at that deals are still getting are still closing and we're still seeing decent sized series a deals in farm tech you know i've seen some around the 20 million mark which is a really large series a deal um you know across across the globe honestly so it's really exciting to see how this all plays out and i think i think it's a good thing that we're having this this little pullback because it just really means that um, the most valuable companies that are doing the best work are going to continue to succeed and maybe have a little, little bit less noise around. Yeah, okay. And you've mentioned farm tech a little bit here. And so the report does note that it is maturing, as you've talked about already, as funding has doubled in 2021, reaching $2.2 billion, driven by large deals and a 17.5% uptick in deal numbers. So curious to know what is driving this and and where do you see opportunities for Australian farmers and Australian startups with this trend? Yeah, I mean, Australia's got a great, a great ecosystem. Um, and again, is one of the ones that's been established for a while. You know, you don't have the huge numbers of deals um, that you see in, you know, in, in places like India and China, but you've got a very broad spectrum of startups in Australia. And uh, I think you've also got particular strength in the carbon space. Um, and when I say carbon, I mean quite, you know, it could be regenerative agriculture, enabling technologies, um, technologies for regenerative ranches, but then equally looking more specifically at carbon sequestration and carbon measurement. Um, you've got some great companies there. So I think that's a that's a great opportunity for the Australian marketplace and the ecosystem. But what's interesting is that the largest deals that took place uh, last year in Australia were actually downstream. So you had a couple of retail and restaurant technologies, um, and you also had a alternative protein company, V2 Food, which I think is your leading plant-based brand. 
Yes, that is right. And I was going to ask you a little bit about these, you know, notable investments in uh, these downstream technologies and and restaurant technologies to begin with, but also um, V2 Foods closed a hefty 52.9 million Series B round. So what are your predictions with, you know, all the touch points that you have for the plant-based meat sector in the next five years? Like, are we going to see any roadblocks or any new opportunities for growth both globally and locally here in Australia? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question and it's literally something that everyone's talking about at the moment. We put an article out a couple of months ago that was written by one of our advisors, um, a brand strategist called Adam Hampft. And essentially, he said that the plant-based industry was a branding catastrophe. He said that these plant-based brands have made real terrible branding um, decisions and that they focused on the fact that, what do you call it, the declarative moment. They focused on the fact that you can get a product made from plants that taste like meat, but they haven't gone any further than that. And it, it seems that we are at this point where just the fact that this this product exists is not enough for consumers to be buying these products on a regular basis. Um, the brands need to connect more with the consumer because at the end of the day, they they taste a bit like meat. Some of them are okay, but they're not great. And if you want to eat meat, I think people are still, are still eating meat. They might put throw in a few of these alternatives here and there, but the sales numbers are really coming down. And I think the novelty effect, that declarative moment has now passed. So these products really need to stand up and, and do a better job on that front, but also just create tastier products. But what I think, and I don't know if this is going to be a prediction or not, what I would love to see is not meat analogs, but I'd like to see new protein formats like what's the next tofu you know like tofu's I mean I really love tofu I think tofu's great but like create another product that's a protein that um, isn't trying to be something else because then you're not always going to have that comparison if you're constantly kind of comparing again that wears off that's not that fun anymore you just want something that's yummy uh, that you want to eat regularly and I think that's what we really need in the alternative protein space yeah, there's some really interesting points there, Lou. Uh, in So following on, you know, a lot of this conversation and the response from consumers ties in, you know, quite heavily with some of the issues that we're dealing with, food security, climate change and other external crises which are front and centre in the Asia-Pacific investment trends. Uh, what categories do you anticipate will see increased deal flow in the next five years and, and and why? Yeah, it's a great question. And I always wish I'd have a um a crystal ball. I think I think what's going to be quite interesting, I've seen a few interesting deals around the infrastructure around these kind of alternative products. And it doesn't necessarily have to be alternative proteins, but if we use that as an example, I mean, I will add, I don't think that's going away. And I'm actually starting to get very excited about the cultivated meat space. I think I probably didn't allow myself to get excited because it felt like it was so far away. But I've had a, a few really exciting um, conversations recently. I went to visit Aleph Farms in Israel. I know it's sort of slightly out of scope for, for this Asia Pacific conversation. But, you know, they're going to have products out next year. 
And that really is is an exciting development um, in the meat alternative space. But I think what one of these things that a lot of these companies, whatever type of process they're using, whether it's fermentation or um, cell engineering or, or whatever, is the, the actual infrastructure, sort of the supply chain for them to get hold of their kind of inputs, their ingredients and so on, but also the manufacturing capabilities. So I've seen a couple of companies that are, are getting into that realm where they're like becoming enabling technologies for some of these brands or these other big food manufacturers. Um, and it's slightly less sexy, <laughs> but I think it's exciting because it shows the maturity of the industry now. Uh, I think for these companies to scale and be a CPG brand and a food manufacturer and an R&D and science technology company, it's a lot to ask for a startup. And I think I wonder if some of the business models and, and the investments behind some of these companies it's it's been challenging to kind of figure out the economics on on some of that. So I think you'll see some really interesting tools that can help with some of that. I've seen kind of, you know, um, fermenting as a service or for instance, or, you know, an online platform that can help you to find uh, the infrastructure and, and the biomanufacturing capabilities that you need. So I think around that. And I think generally that's sort of within what we call the midstream technologies, this like messy middle of the food supply chain. There's a lot more innovation that's needed there. It's not as sexy, but I think it's, I think it could be um, really interesting for entrepreneurs to, to get involved there. Yeah, absolutely. The value adding solutions that, you know, bring together the puzzle. Uh... And it could be also on the farm tech side, it could be if you've got a novel seeds novel input products again like ramping up the production for some of those might not be something that the company that's focused on the science um or is focused on the marketing to the farmers maybe they don't have the capacity to be doing that as well um yeah. and particularly if we're getting into a sort of more challenging funding environment as well yeah creating value in different ways rather than duplicating other solutions that are out there well, exactly. I think, you know, I think there is there is a conversation out there about how people are going it alone and, and, and repeating. They're making the same kind of discoveries or, you know, they, we don't need to all be doing the same thing, reinventing the wheel every single time. Um, there's a school of thought that there should be some level of open access research, particularly on technologies which are, you know, urgently needed when you think about the climate and social crises that we face. So why is every plant-based meat and dairy company reinventing the wheel why can't they share some of that knowledge and know-how and actually just focus on getting great products to consumers to build that as a as a viable category on the shelves um but that could be you know you could say the same thing in other categories as well so um so yeah watch watch this space on that so you mentioned carbon technologies and you know soil carbon solutions earlier and one particular startup I wanted to talk about today is is Lone Bio which was ranked in the top five Aussie deals and the only farm tech deal in the top five uh, which was worth 30.1 million US dollars uh, their deal in 2021. So what do, what does this deal signal to the rest of the world in terms of Australia's strength in in carbon tech and ongoing commitment to decarbonisation? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great deal. And you said it was a, a female founder, which I'm always very excited about, particularly when you get onto the sort of uh, deep science side of things. So that's awesome to see. I, what I think is really cool about this company is that there's a lot going on in carbon at the moment. And there's a lot... Um, there's a lot of very sort of early science when it comes to the carbon measurement, carbon monitoring and so on. And I think there's a bit of uncertainty there, honestly. So I, I do get concerned that there's a bit of a hype bubble around carbon um, coming for some of these solutions. But what I think is cool about this is that they've actually got something where they're, they're actually sequestering and capturing the carbon with their technology so they're not saying if you follow a certain practice this is what's going to happen and relying on kind of verifying that with farmers and so on they're actually building a technology that can hopefully actually pull the the carbon um out of the atmosphere so i think it's really exciting but as i mentioned before you know it's cool that Australia, you've got lots of different approaches. You've got software approaches for the carbon and regen ag problem and this is obviously a biotech um, approach yeah, so they're launching their product next year, 2023. So that's very exciting. And when I caught up with uh, Lone Bio's co-founder and chief product officer, Tegan Nock, who's also a fellow farmer, uh, to discuss their noteworthy deal, Tegan did talk about the size of the biologicals market, which really struck me. You know, it's worth $11.6 billion US dollars and projected to reach $30 billion by 2030. Th- these are some of the stats that she shared with me, which uh, is massive. Uh, and mm. w- what do you make of the market opportunity and, and where are you seeing real uptake of, of biotech across the globe? Yeah, it's really exciting. I think it's another one that there's been a lot of promise for this category for so long. And unfortunately, we haven't seen the results. And there have been companies in this space that have, you know, had some traction on the funding front, but we just haven't seen it translate into big adoption on the farm yet. But I think the tides are starting to turn there. And what's really interesting was the other day I was um, listening to a panel all about exits, ag tech, venture capital exits in our industry, which have been few and far between. And it's something that all entrepreneurs obviously want to keep their eye on so they can get hopefully a windfall someday for their hard work. But um, one of the areas that the people, these were a, a combination of um, corporate VCs and venture capitalists that were kind of opining on where they think the next exits will come from. And um, biologicals was one of those areas, because I think that um, a lot of the innovations that are going on inside the large agribusiness companies um, might not be cut quite as cutting edge as, the, as what you're seeing in the startup world. So I think it's exciting. I mean, yeah, just got to see like this stuff on the farms, got to see the results that they that they have, you know, there's was this whole reputation of being snake oil um, back in back in the day, and I think the thing with microbials is that it's so challenging to um, deploy these because you know they're living organisms. So the way you get them to the farm, are they going to stay alive when they're being transported? You know, there's like a whole range of challenges, which I'm sure Tegan knows very well. Um, but yeah, just so excited to see the results because I think this could absolutely be huge. Why would you use a synthetic or chemical product on your farm when you could use a biological one? I should say for the same results. It it definitely needs to have the same results, if not better. (laughs) Because then, yeah, you're still going to use the existing option. So reflecting on some of those, you know, the hype that you mentioned, 
Are you able to share any of the sort of barriers to adoption that you're familiar with or any lessons of biologicals that, you know, haven't gone well or what we can learn and how we can improve? I think what you hear overall with farm tech and ag tech, particularly in developed markets, is that farmers are, are quite fatigued with yet another entrepreneur knocking on their door, wanting them to trial their technology. And mostly, I guess I'm thinking about this in the software realm, but I'm sure it's the same in for biologicals too. And they have to give up their time, a portion of their land to test out these technologies. And I think results have not been great. And the return on investment of their time has not even been worth it. So I think... Um, yeah, we just need to get the efficacy up and give them a real reason. There needs to be a pull through for why they should be adopting these these new products. And it needs to be, you know, it needs to be easy for them. It needs to fit into their existing buying and retailing practices as well. Yeah. Where do you see potential gaps in the market for Australian startups going forward and opportunities for investment into the Australian market? I think more on... I think more on the carbon side, um, I think that's great. I think maybe something around that infrastructure piece I was talking to you about in, you know, alternative proteins. Australia is a big meat supplier to the world. Uh, no reason why they couldn't be a big alt meat supplier. Uh, you have a lot of space and a lot of land. So maybe that can be utilized if it's not being used for farming. Um, it could be utilized for other types of food manufacturing. Uh, I think you've got, you know, great breadth of of innovations there. And you do have this very well-renowned research, um, agricultural research, which is what's fantastic about what you're doing with Grow Ag is trying to bring some of that to the fore and, and enabling people to create technologies out of it. So I think really just more of that, because that is definitely something unique for Australia. So as head of media for Ag Funder and chief editor of Ag Funder News, you're obviously working across so many interesting stories happening in agri-food tech globally. What sort of startups and solutions are grabbing your attention and your readers' attention right now? You know, who, who should we be looking out for? Um, yes, yeah, so the big kind of areas of interest at the moment have been carbon and regenerative agriculture. They've really become into the sort of public vernacular. What I get quite excited about is um, agribusiness marketplaces and technologies that can aggregate farmers together, particularly smallholder farmers who just haven't got the access to high quality inputs, access to markets to sell their wares, really helping them to um, improve their farming practices and, and make more money out of it and, and move beyond subsistence farming. So I think there's a great opportunity for that in um, Asia Pacific and some really leading startups there. And what's quite cool is that you often see companies um, migrate from Asia Pacific, particularly India region, across to Africa as well. So I think there's a really nice kind of potential tie-in there and, and technology export. There's there's a lot happening and it has been really, really exciting learning from you, Lou, and hearing more about the report and, and what's um, in store for us in the next in the next part of 2022 and beyond. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. That was Louisa Burwood-Taylor breaking down Asia-Pacific's key investment trends and the trajectory for 2023. Tegan Nock, co-founder and CPO of Loan Bio, 
now joins us from Orange, New South Wales to talk about their momentous Series A investment deal and how their microbial tech is geared to help farmers tackle climate change. Tegan, welcome to the AgriFutures Grow Ag podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us, Sam. It's, it's really great to be here. So tell us about Lone Bio and how your microbial technology works. Yeah, absolutely. So Lone Bio works with around four and a half billion years worth of evolution to help us address, address the climate crisis. Um, so we're creating practical climate solutions for growers to be using on farm that help them to drive their on-farm productivity at the same time as delivering sustainability outcomes. Um, So the incredible team at Loam has uh, just developed a microbial inoculum that increases not just the amount of carbon that we're actually sequestering into our soils, but also the stability of that carbon that's being drawn into and sequestered into our agricultural soils. Um, It's treated on seed of common crops before sowing, and then the plants and that inoculum work together um, to be able to build carbon within soils. Um, we've seen some really, really great results coming out from that product. So uh, our barley product, for example, has an average increase of around six tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent that's pulled down and stored within soils through that growing season. So has benefits for things such as increased soil health, you know, you're getting more nutrient-rich crops um, and, and you know, you, you do see a little yield bump coming along with those products. But ultimately, being able to actually increase the carbon within our soils is helping us to boost the bottom line for growers and, and ultimately generating the potential for them to have a new income stream on farm that is is through the sale of those carbon offsets. Yeah, that's really interesting hearing some of the benefits for farmers. So, you know, Lone Bio has grown tremendously uh, since you founded in 2019 when you were known as Soil Carbon Co. Back then, you've got four laboratories in two continents and trial sites across Australia and North American farming regions. So I'm curious to know uh, a little bit more about your footprint and, and the crops you're working with. Yeah, we have had quite an interesting few years over the last couple of years, growing from a a very small team in the middle of the central west of New South Wales out to, like you say, that global footprint, which we're really honoured to be able to have that team just continuing to grow. So we're up to about 70 um, people now that span across our research and development work, developing that carbon inoculum, and now expanding out to be able to support growers on farm with their carbon projects. Um, so that is right across Australia, as you say, the US, and, and we're working um, to be able to deliver that technology to Canadian farmers now as well. Um, but through that process, we've we've built out a library of around 2,500 unique microorganisms that sit in our library, um, and we're made up of a team of, of researchers, microbiologists, soil scientists, agronomists, uh, project managers, uh, a lot of our, our carbons team, carbon team that are really supporting the technology on farm to be able to operationalise um, some of those carbon projects. Um, but, you know, ultimately what we're doing is looking at being able to have maximum impact. So having that global footprint really allows us to step into each of those countries and, and really generate um, really good, robust products for those geographies and have maximum impact. So when we look at that maximum impact, um, what we do is in each geography, we we work with the cropping um, species that are obviously most prevalent in those areas. So it makes a lot of sense for us to be able to address 
the majority of, of cropping rotations and we do focus on broadacre cropping rotations um, at the moment. Um, so, for example, in the US, we're working on soy and corn as our first products that we're developing there. And in Australia, wheat, barley and canola um, are, the, are the first port of call for us to really focus in for product development. Yeah, great. So we, we did touch on the benefits for farmers and, and, you know, integrating your inoculum into their cropping regime. And you've mentioned a few of those crops. But can you just tell us a little bit about the process that, you know, it's is it sprayed onto the seed and, and how does it work? What's the time frame and how does a farmer get involved? Yeah, absolutely. So when we when we do talk about those benefits, um, it's it's looking at the consortia of benefits effectively that that product can bring. So short term, mid term, and long term. The short term being around you know in season um, support for the the health of that cropping system growth, so resulting in sometimes a small yield increase. What we then also look at is that that mid term carbon increase that is actually able to be monetized by growers. Um, being that that second piece of the value and then the third piece being that longer term um, value in terms of soil health you, you know building up natural capital and and being able to have the fertility of your land increasing through having that increased soil that's the soil carbon sorry that's that's sitting in your soil um, that then is that kind of consortia of benefits but when we look at the technology itself it's actually relatively simple um, to actually then in, integrate into a cropping system. So at the moment, it's as a direct seed treatment um, that we're working with. We're just in the process of developing a couple of new product forms for us to be mm-hmm. able to go live with. Um, but it is it is simply a case of coating seed just prior to planting and planting it out as you normally would. Um, obviously, really important for us to be able to lower any barriers to adoption. You know, you don't want to make it more complex um, for growers to, you know, as they're getting out and, and battling against all of the odds, um, you know, within the season to plant, to, to add any additional complexity there. So having a really simple, straightforward seed coating is a path that we've taken to be able to to get this technology into hectares worth of farmlands. Breaking down those barriers to adoption is key. So we've talked about the various benefits. Your, you know, your solution is geared to address climate change, our greatest challenge today, through the means of agriculture, which is very exciting, and you're simultaneously creating value for growers, so it's a win-win. How scalable is your solution and can you speak to the market value opportunity? You know, what what is that market value opportunity both nationally and globally? Yeah, for sure. And I guess stepping back when we look at... um why we've started in broadacre cropping um, to develop the technology on, it really is being able to have that scalability um, layered into into the technology. So there's around 1.6 billion hectares worth of farmland that we're actively farming every year from a cropping perspective. Um, so you think about the scalability that comes in with with just that sheer, sheer volume um, of hectares that we can actually apply over. Um, it becomes um, also a technology that there's a, around a billion people, um, give or take depending on year, um, that are employed in the agricultural sector. So we're leveraging a really significant um, land area and we're leveraging a workforce which is already existing to be able to integrate this kind of technology that enables us to supercharge um, what we can do in terms of our sequestration abilities. So scalability there is really key when we're looking at what um, sector we're focusing and what what land area we're focusing on. 
I think when you think about the size of that market opportunity, um, we split it down in, in two different ways. Um, so there's obviously the carbon markets, um, which from a global perspective is around a $1.1 trillion market um, AUD. Um, and, and we're seeing consistent increases in the price paid per tonne of carbon dioxide equivalent. And we're seeing that obviously that market is playing a really significant role in, in the decarbonisation of our, our global economy more broadly. Um, and it's, it's really incentivising our population to be able to reduce emissions. When you look at it from the other aspect of, of just a biologicals market as well, looking at the, the inputs, the agricultural inputs that are in that biological space, at the moment that market is around $11.6 billion um, that the biological market represents and that's in US dollars. And so it's projected to increase to around $30 billion um, by 2029, 2030. Uh, so the size of, of the market that we're operating in with a highly scalable technology um, is relatively significant, yeah. Wow, there's some big figures there. I think further to this, the scalability of your solution and all the impact that you're having, uh, you know, this has been demonstrated, the importance of Lone Bio in the release of the 2022 Ag Funder Asia Pacific Agri-Food Tech Investment Report recently. You ranked in the top five investment deals in Australia, which is about 40 million Australian dollars, 30.1 million US in 2021. Tell us what does this mean to you being the only farm tech deal in the top five and tell us a little bit more about the investors involved. Yeah, so we've been incredibly fortunate um, to have some some really fantastic investors that have seen the opportunity here and, and really appreciate what it means for growers to be able to, to participate um, in carbon farming, but also um, be able to, to diversify revenue streams. And, and so looking at the way that some really fantastic investors have jumped in in the early days as well, so from our from our seed round Horizon Ventures, um, who were early backers in in companies like Zoom and Spotify, um, have been really fantastic um, pushing pushing the work forward that we do and and really believing in that mission. Recently, we've had Time Ventures, which is Mark Benioff who founded Salesforce, and so he was our lead investor in that Series B. But it just really highlights that that agriculture and climate are key areas of, of investment now. Um, one thing that Mark Benioff, um, you'll often find him talking about in the media at the moment, is the role that ecopreneurs um, can play in getting out and decarbonising. Um, and and so he really really focuses in on on what it looks like for incentives to align in both business and environmental works. And he's seen. Um, that there's a lot of value in being able to partner up with uh, founders like us that are that are really focusing on where those incentives start to overlap. Um, but more broadly, you know, we've had fantastic support from groups like CEFC's um, Innovation Fund, Main Sequence Ventures, um, which is CSIRO's um, affiliated investment group, um, groups like Lower Carbon Capital, who are based out of the US that are doing incredible things in the decarbonisation space. Um, all the way through back on the home front to GRDC's Grain Innovate. Um, so we've been just incredibly fortunate to be able to have really, really good support um, 
from a strong group of investors. And, and, it, and it really does signal to other companies in this space that there is real value in being able to step in um, to uh, kicking off that company that you might be thinking about. There's a, a challenge that we're facing and, and you've got the solution for it, but it gives that signal that you know, the the support is out there. It's just about finding the right kind of investors, matching up with them um, and getting to it. Yeah, there's some big names in there backing you, Tegan. It's very exciting and I love the ecopreneurs term that you've just shared. So loan buyers entering the market now and, you know, you've already shared that investors already have the confidence to invest significantly in your Series A round. What do you think this says about the confidence in microbial technology and the climate tech sector? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really does show that the the confidence is there. It's also a signal that investors really understand what it takes to be able to get a technology like this to market. Um, And so, you know, biotech takes capital. Um, It's something that as you go through a process of product development, there's an absolute necessity for the highest level of rigour as you do that. Um, things like the work that we do with our academic partners. We've got um, a handful of really strong collaborations with folks like the Australian National University, University of Western Sydney, um, Texas A&M over in the US. Um, But really going through that process of uh, running from lab to greenhouse to field and having significant investment in that early product development work pays off dividends in the end. So making sure that there is actually enough capital to be able to invest in a significant way to have robustness in the product that's ultimately delivered to market. And a lot of the a lot of the investors that are working with us are really are really familiar with that biotech and deep tech space and can appreciate, you know, that 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 area does take capital to be able to deliver something that is really robust and ultimately can can solve that problem in the long term. Um, but I think it also shows that, you know, the where we're seeing that leveraging of that incredible demand that's coming through from markets like the carbon market. Um, where it's so very clear that that the demand isn't going away um, and that will continue to be a growth area you know going forward you can you can see more broadly as well it's it's not necessarily just investors that are coming into this space um, there are a lot of companies that from a voluntary perspective are stepping in um, and and trying to link up with companies that are able to actually fulfill their requirements um, for their net zero goals. So we've got a really great partnership going on with Shopify, um, and they they've committed to purchase offsets from Australian growers um, to meet some of their net zero commitments. And it's just great to see that from all of the different sectors, be it investment, be it um, business, that are actually looking to commit to some of those goals um, that they've set out, that that's starting to flow through to the Australian market and we're really starting to see, you know, the impacts of that actually coming out on farm um, and being demonstrated at that farm level. That relationship with Shopify sounds really interesting. Can, can you just share a little bit more about how that will work? Yeah, so that uh, that is a, a pilot carbon project that'll be running. Um, it's actually kicked off uh, last year. A lot of the work that we're doing with a couple of key growers, and so what we're doing is we're demonstrating our technology on farm. Um, 
through the course of seasons, we're applying our inoculum. We're running that aligned with um, with globally recognised carbon methodologies, and ultimately those growers are getting paid um, and credited for the carbon that they're building, with the additional recognition that the carbon that they're building by using our microbial tools does actually increase the stability of that carbon. So there's a recognition for high quality carbon credits in what those those off-takers have committed to, to pay for those credits. So we'll be having um, planting happening over the next few years. We'll be having a lot of soil sampling going on across those areas and we'll start to see um, some really great case studies coming through um, that, that farmers more broadly can really look at and, and see then how those case studies and the learnings from those can fit into their farming businesses. Yeah, interesting. So just following on from your references earlier about capital and robustness, going back to the Ag Funder investment report, it notes that farm tech is maturing and, and you've sort of signaled to that as well, as funding has doubled in 2021, reaching $2.2 billion, driven by large deals and a 17.5% uptick in deal numbers year on year. What do you think is driving this and where do you see opportunities for Aussie startups like yourself to gain the attention of global investors? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting time that we live in at the moment, isn't it? So I think it was around mid-November 22, we just ticked over to 8 billion mouths to feed um, globally and, and there is really a recognition more broadly, of, of the role that food security has to play. Um, we've seen some of the, the geopolitical turmoil um, that has really heightened that that need to be conscious of food security and, and continue to invest in that as a, as a key area. Um, but I think on the other side of that, you know, looking at, looking at things like um, the impacts that COVID has had over the last few years in terms of investment. Um, We have seen a really interesting, um, I guess, for want of a better term, democratisation of access to investors, Um, not necessarily having in-person meetings and and people really moving across to online presence means that then you have greater access to some of the the players that you would normally have to fly to the other side of the world to be able to, to sit down and have a conversation with. Um, and I think especially for Australia, that's been a really, really positive move for us to be able just to get in front of the right kinds of people who have that level of investment um, that, that they're willing to commit to. We've also seen a massive maturity in terms of um, what's happening in Australia. There's been some incredible work done by um, a lot of Australian-centric funds um, and funds that are based out of Australia that are coming online. Um, and so that's represented really well across our our, our, our investor suite um, and, and the investors that have been able to support us. Um, but, yeah, I mean, gaining the attention of global investors, I think that there's some incredible things. You know, you look at the work that Grow Aggie is actually doing and, and the platforms that are being built up. Um, it really is about being able to make sure that there is that level of exposure that you can have to be able to then um, get to the point where you're having conversations with these guys who can actually, you know, be aligned with what you're trying to deliver um, and and help to take you to the next level. So food security, climate change and other external crises are front and centre in the Asia-Pacific investment trends. As you've also mentioned today, 
What categories do you anticipate we'll see increased deal flow in the next five years and why? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is like I say, a really interesting time, um, you know, looking at what's happening on the world stage at the moment. You know, you've along with things like climate change, you also have, uh, you know, I guess ageing populations, a, a rise in kind of changes caused by geopolitics. You've got things like, you know, growing debt and, and rising inequality that are starting to drive um, some of those some of those, I guess, investment um, investment trends. I guess personally, some of the things that I'm really keeping a close eye on um, are the things that enable us to start to reduce our footprint, um, you know, looking at things like reducing input costs into agriculture, um, which has become um, something that has a renewed level of importance placed on it, um, you know, being able to have alternatives to particular inputs that might be based on fossil fuels or they might be based on things that we just know that um, from a social licence perspective do have a relatively short time frame um, that we want to be able to generate some of those alternatives in. There's some some really great companies doing doing things in this space at the moment and I'm really excited to see what, what kinds of things they'll be turning out um, with the level of investment that's been flowing that way. Definitely. And inputs 100% is is a space that's really interesting seeing how farmers can change that and reduce their footprint. Uh, so biologicals is definitely on everyone's radar and the carbon economy is booming, presenting lots of opportunities for farmers. Can you explain how you're helping farmers unlock new pathways when it comes to carbon projects and diversifying agricultural assets that ultimately reduces risks. We we did talk about the size of the market uh, before, which I think you said was $11.6 billion, uh, for the biologicals in US dollars and projected to increase to $30 billion by 2030. Yeah, and I guess the, the thing that I want to stress here is that carbon projects in agriculture are by no means new. What really is a new piece here is something that that the enabling technology being brought online really does then um, kind of shift gears in terms of how we look at things like carbon projects. So uh, technology like ours, to be able to drive much greater carbon outcomes under the framework of those projects uh, are really a game changer. So our agronomists like to talk about kind of the agronomic toolbox that every farmer has you know, you open up your toolbox, you look inside and you've got all these tools to address, you know, pests, diseases, uh, you know, soil fertility issues. But being able to actually have something that allows you to drive forward effectively your carbon yield is something that really puts um, a greater emphasis and, and a greater potential on what the economics look like with carbon projects. And particularly in the cropping space, it's it's been an area that has been overlooked for a long time and and rightly so because the technology is there to be able to actually increase um, soil carbon above and beyond have either been um, non-existent or they're, they're quite logistically challenging to be able to implement on farms. So you look at things like cover crops or, you know, your, your integration of, of no-till, which a lot of our Australian growers have already adopted, there aren't actually that many things to be able to count as practice change to layer in. 
um, and and looking at some of the tools that enable you to have really significant increases in your effective carbon yield um, haven't necessarily been bought online. So with a with a greater investment into R&D in some of those tools, what we can see is that, you know, our, our carbon projects can really leverage those technologies that then give us a really exciting opportunity from an economic perspective for that carbon project. Um, and so, you know, Loam's, Loam's working to provide those new technologies to growers, but also really streamline the way that we deliver those carbon projects to give a really simple, straightforward um, enterprise level um, addition to that farm um, that, that enables us to diversify income streams and have a, have a genuine um, income stream that's coming through from that carbon project. I think the other thing that becomes really interesting there is particularly our technology being able to build out a higher quality soil carbon, so not just total organic carbon overall, but we're looking at increasing our mineral associated and and aggregate carbon, which are carbons that do have longer residence time within soils, um, then allows us to be able to go out into the marketplace and and build certainty in the type of carbon that's coming from agricultural offsets, which is exactly what we've seen uh, with deals like that Shopify deal that we were talking about there and those projects that that are running um, to be able to demonstrate the value of, of not just building carbon on farm, but also then the quality of the offsets that are coming off the back of those projects. Yeah, and I'm curious to know in terms of the work that you've done to date with farmers and, you know, we've talked about the ecological benefits uh, quite a lot and there's, and there's so many co-benefits there. Is there much in terms of uh, anticipated return on investment or, you know, we've got productivity gains there, but is, is there much in terms of the monetary value that a farmer could expect or and the timeline around that? I know timelines will vary. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you start to get down to that level, the, there is a um, – it's really important for each and every grower – to do their modelling on their enterprise and their farms in the way that they run their farms. Um, so, you know, it depends on on what you're looking at for soil type. It depends on what you're looking at in terms of what your biomass growth potentially is above ground and then obviously your carbon potential below ground. Um, but it's really important for each of those growers to actually sit down and assess that on a on a farm by farm level. So we have a team of agronomists um, that do actually work with growers to be able to sit down and run them through what it actually looks like for them to run a carbon project based on you know what your expected climate variability would look like across your region, uh, what your expected rainfall would look like across your region, and what your what your soil type would look like, um, where you're actually farming. Um, but it becomes a case of it's it's really important for individual growers to be super aware of what their return on investment does look like. We build out some really interesting models that enable growers to maximise that return on investment, um, but it then comes to a case of how can we apply those across your farm um, with your inputs to be able to give a really strong view of what that ROI looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And so, Tegan, as Chief Product Officer, uh, which would be an incredibly exciting role, what drives the direction of your microbial selection and and building long-term resilience of our global food system? We've touched on it earlier, but what's next in the pipeline? 
Yeah, so you're right. It is it is something that's pretty exciting, and I mean to be to be honest, it's something that um, you know having built out that incredible library. You know, like I say, we have two and a half thousand different uh, microbial strains in that library, and a whole lot that are, that are kind of showing up as new to science or potentially unexplored um, species and and strains. It's something that we do have to be really clear on what it actually looks like, that our scope is for new product development work. So our focus really sits at that intersection of, of um, agriculture, climate and microbial science. So within that scope, we do prioritise based on the potential impact of technologies. Um, so being able to deliver these new technologies or new modes of action that really do have global impact and global scale is really important to us. Um, so, you know, we, we go in and mine that library for the sweet spot where we can find reduced emissions or carbon capture on farm. Um, and, you know, as a, as a bonus, which is always great to be able to find, is an increase in on-farm productivity, which obviously our, our soil carbon inoculum product is one that 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 really hits that sweet spot of us being able to have um, both that sustainability view and the on-farm um, return on investment or increase in productivity. Um, and so we do have some interesting technology that's that's sitting in the pipeline right now. I would love to share more, but I think that we might wait until we uh, we see what has well and truly enough potential when it's tested out in the real world to be able to be bought online and be offered up next to our soil carbon inoculums. Well, we'll wait with anticipation. I really like the intersection you've referenced of ag, climate and microbial science. So talking about those new technologies, are you able to share a little bit more about what the next six months looks like for Lone Bio and where you're channeling your energy, your focus to ensure this continued growth? And you mentioned, you know, global impact. What's important for that? So there's a, there's a few things happening, um, a few big things happening on a few different fronts. Um, and I guess the first of that is really working towards our product launch um, for Australia for the 2023 growing season. Um, so there's some incredible work that's happening with the Australian team here behind the scenes just to get that product polished up and, and ready to go to, to be delivered on farm. Um, and, and we're just working uh, towards our final year of our pre-commercial trialling in the US that's coming up in 2023 and then stepping into our first year of Canadian trials. So over in the uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, the loam team is is working working pretty hard to get all of that um, ready to go. And I guess I guess for us it really is about um, you know looking at the level of support that loam has had and and what we're hoping to achieve and, and looking to deliver. We are just continuing to build out that incredible team. We have just some some really fantastic people that are doing incredible things here at Loam. And so we're looking to be able to build out that team to deliver, you know, more value to growers and make sure that that the value that is coming through to them is is really recognized um, and that growers can make the most of, of the opportunity of our technology and of carbon markets. Um, and you know, it, it's it's really about us getting to a place where we can be enabling growers to capture that value while they get out there and, and they're doing the things that they need to to be able to take climate action. Um, and if, if we can do that, then we're, we're well and truly on our way um, to, making, to making the most of it. 
Lots to come. It's very exciting and I'm really looking forward to the product launch in 2023. So it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Tegan, and thank you so much for making the time to join us at the AgriFutures Grow Ag podcast. No worries. Thank you very much for having me, Sam. That was Tegan Nock speaking with us from Lone Bio and Louisa Burwood-Taylor from AgFunder. If you'd like to learn more about the 2022 AgFunder Asia-Pacific Investment Report, visit agfundernews.com to download reports and read more great stories. And you can visit AgriFutures Grow Ag platform at growag.com to read our story. And don't forget, tickets for Evocag 2023 are on sale at evocag.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening today. My name is Steve Honor. And until next time, have a great day.